Hello, I'm Nick Malkoutis. This episode was recorded and edited before the deadly shipwreck that occurred off the coast of Greece in the early hours of June the 14th. It's being reported that many hundreds of migrants, including women and children, possibly locked in the hold of the vessel, have drowned. 104 survivors were rescued by the Greek Coast Guard and were brought to the mainland. We will be following this story closely and we will return to the migration issue which we covered in the first season of the Agora in a future episode. For now, we'll continue with our preview of Greece's second general elections of this summer. Welcome back to the Agora, the podcast where no matter what time of year or day, we're only too happy to talk about Greek elections. I'm Phoebe Foronista. And I'm Nick Malkoutsis. If you think that you've accidentally put on a previous podcast, don't worry, you haven't. Greece likes elections so much that having held one on May the 21st, we're doing the whole thing again on June the 25th. In case you're new to uh, what's happening, the reason that Greeks are voting again in a few days is that the first election last month was held under the proportional representation system. Even though the centre-right party that had been in power for the last four years, New Democracy or Nea Demokratia as it's called in Greek, got almost 41% of the vote, increasing the support it had received actually in 2019. But it wasn't enough to gain a majority in Greek Parliament. New Democracy's leader, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, did not want to enter into coalition talks. And the opposition parties on the left of the political spectrum, led by left-wing Syriza in second place and centre-left Pasok in third, did not have enough seats to create their own administration. As a result, we're heading for a second vote that will be held under a different system, which awards up to 50 bonus seats to the winning party. Obviously, New Democracy is hoping to repeat its performance, which would deliver a parliamentary majority on June the 25th. And I think that's the briefest summary we can give you. If you want more in-depth analysis, you can check out our previous episode where we broke down the results of the first election. This show will be mostly dedicated to looking ahead to the second election and what we think things could look like after June 25th. Shortly, we'll be hearing from Labrini Rory. She's an assistant professor in political analysis at the University of Athens, and she'll be speaking to us about what we can take away from the May 21st vote, where it leaves the parties going into the upcoming electoral contest, and whether we have reached a landmark moment in Greek politics. But first, Phoebe has something for us. What you got, Phoebes? Well, I've actually got a great election plus artificial intelligence sidebar, as we used to say when we worked in newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's an, an open source project where data journalists, Greek data journalists, with the help of ChatGPT, were able to analyze the political rhetoric of Greece's party leaders to see what levels of polarization there was in their in their in their speeches, what themes they had, and what keywords they used the most. And it was developed by Kelly Kiki and Thanasis Trobukis, who are project managers over at the IMED Lab. Uh, IMED stands for Incubator for Media Education and Development, and it's a journalism nonprofit funded by the Stavros Niarchos Foundation. And their mission is to support and promote transparency, credibility, and independence in the field of journalism. In fact, the folks at IMED were our first listeners, as the Agora was selected by them in 2020 as one of their incubator projects, and they supported us throughout our first year. And in the interest of full disclosure, I now actually work at IMED. I left the streets and crossed over into the nonprofit world a few months ago, but I was not involved in this project. So my curiosity while interviewing Kelly is genuine. Wait, you work somewhere else as well? <laughs> I thought you were like full-time Agora host and producer. I didn't tell you? Yeah, what a bombshell. <laughs> 
I, I need to get your agent, get the gigs that you're g- getting. Anyway, let's hear what uh, interesting results uh, uh, Kelly and Thanasis came up with. Kelly, welcome to the Agora. It's so good to have you here. Hello, hi, and thank you very much for the invitation. Tell us a little bit uh, about the project. What inspired it? What what insights did you guys hope to get? And, and how many people worked on this? Okay, so in this project, we have been analyzing the campaign speeches of the different political leaders who lead the parties that were represented in the parliament within the latest parliamentary period, right? Mm -hmm. So we analyze their daily political speeches in terms of topics they choose to elaborate on. We conduct sentiment analysis to find out if negative, positive or just neutral sentiment is detected in their discourse. And of course, we analyze their speeches in terms of polarization and populism. So we perform specific analysis to discover what levels of polarization and populism are detected in the political leaders' pre-election discourse. We launched the project when the first pre-election period started in late April 2023, ahead of the ballots of the 21st of May. Mm -hmm. And we have been maintaining this ahead of the general elections to be held for a second time in late June 2023. So we perform this analysis by using ChatGPT, but according to human knowledge and guidance, we have been providing ChatGPT with and we also use two more AI solutions for transcribing and for transcribing the campaign speeches and for translation purposes because we we translate the leader's speeches in English before feeding ChatGPT with them. As already mentioned, we do not let AI to do the whole job for us, but there is a human effort made for this project to to happen. So 16 people have been contributing in total, including journalists, a political scientist, IT officers who support us, and of course, the data lab team from the Department of Informatics in the Aristotle University of Thessaloniki. The data lab team consists of data scientists who have built the relevant software and perform the data analysis and an expert on data visualizations. So to wrap up, let's say uh, the idea was that we wanted to do something in order to discover what exactly the political leaders elaborate on uh, during their campaign speeches and what is their tone. Mm-hmm. When we speak about this project, we describe it as an experimental collaboration between humans and AI because at the very beginning it was an experiment even for us. And basically the idea was to, to use AI and specifically ChatGPT for two different reasons. A, aiming to minimize the human effort in analyzing the political discourse, but B, to discover the limits, the pros and the cons of this revolutionary technology. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. So in the beginning, you didn't even know if it would work. Yeah, and what exactly is going to happen. We didn't know or how exactly ChatGPT is going to respond back to us. And we had to do uh, too many trial and errors. So we read some speeches of different political leaders in Greece uh, just before the official pre-election period uh, started in uh, April 2023. And we had several trial and errors, like speaking to ChatGPT, asking uh, things from it, 
um, validating its responses and trying to, to improve the way we speak to, to it so that we can get better results uh, with less bias, of course, but I think we will probably speak about it later. So, so let's raise the curtain a bit and, and talk, talk about this, like, this methodology that you guys followed and, and walk us through your developer pains. Like, what kind of prompts did you give ChatGPT? Like, how did it... How did okay, it... <laughs> yeah, sure. So, um, the first step is to collect, to transcribe and to translate the speeches. As a second step, we provide ChatGPT with the speech to be analyzed and we make different requests. So the first is that we ask ChatGPT to respond with the topic detected in each different paragraph of the speech we analyze each time. Uh, ChatGPT has to select the most relevant one out of a list of more than 30 topics we provided it uh, with. The second one is uh, ChatGPT gives us a score in the range of minus one to one to depict the sentiment detected in its different paragraph again. And then we classify the passage uh, in one of the three different given sentiment categories, negative, neutral, or positive sentiment. Uh, last but not least, we make requests for ChatGPT to respond back with a score in a range of values from zero to one to depict to depict the level of polarization and the level of, of populism detected in its different paragraph. And here is where an important human contribution has been made. So Adonis Galanopoulos, the political scientist who is a member of the team, has written specific definitions of polarization and populism ah. according to the political science perspective, of course. So we feed ChatGPT with those definitions and we ask for it to give us a score of polarization and populism detected according to those definitions. So according to what political science says that polarization and populism is and not according to what ChatGPT thinks, considers as polarization and populism. After we have ChatGPT results, the human contribution is valuable again, so different journalists and the political scientists perform the data validation, meaning that they check the ChatGPT results and they annotate the data, so they make corrections when needed, and more or less, this is the process we follow before ending up with the findings and the data visualizations published for its different uh, speeds. So was there anything that surprised you uh, during this process? Like, did you, did you have any interesting findings that you didn't expect? Yeah, yeah. So um, a surprising and major outcome out of this was that there were quite low levels of polarization and populism detected in hmm. leader speeches during the, the first pre-election period uh, from late April 2023 to the elections date on May uh, 21. Uh, so, contrary to what we people believe, or we, you know, uh, hear in the media and stuff like that, yeah, one of our major outcomes was that there were quite low levels of polarization of populism, or even no polarization in populism in some of the speeches. Interesting. Yeah, that was interesting, that was interesting. Probably that is the case when someone ChatGPT in that case replies about polarization and populism after a specific scientific definition is given and not based on, you know, the general sense uh, of things we have. Yeah, because it did feel like 
quite polarized, at least, you know, in the atmosphere and on social media. Exactly. Nobody expected the landslide victory of new democracy. But when the dust settled, what conclusions were you able to draw from, from your analysis to how the parties each fared in the elections? Yeah, um, okay, my personal opinion is that it can be debatable if a campaign period is enough to be the only reason why there was a 20 percentage points difference between the first and the second party uh, out of the elections on uh, the 21st of May. That said, um, what our data investigation has shown is that first, Mitsotakis discourse was the only one in the positive spectrum, while neutrality was detected in general in both Alexis Tsipras and Nikos Androulakis speeches. Secondly, Kyriakos Mitsotakis' discourse was programmatic, so 85% of his campaign discourse was relevant to his party agenda and only 15% was devoted to criticism against political opponents. Mm. On the other hand, Alexis Tsipras' pre-election discourse was divided and the share of criticism towards his political opponents was 50% during the pre-election period ahead of the elections on the 21st of May. Also, because we have been performing name entities recognition in the political leader speeches, what we found is that Kyriakos Mitsotakis was mostly referred by Alexis Tsipras, who mentioned Mitsotakis namely more than 300 times during the first pre-election period. Wow. Uh, when it comes to their agenda, economy, health and employment seem to be the major topics elaborated by both of them. If we exclude the elections themselves, that was the top topic in all political uh, leaders' discourse. <laughs> so, does that mean like a positive attitude and not really mentioning your opponent too much? Uh, does that get the job done? I mean, I, 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 I cannot know, I cannot tell this, I cannot um, know this. We can see if there are going to be any shift in tone mm -hmm. in any of the party leaders and if there are like different uh, election results uh, in late June, we can try out to see if we can connect somehow the shift in their tone with the results. But, you know, those are just hypotheses up until now. Um, yeah. We have been maintaining the project, of course, so we have been like keeping an eye on the first results to see if there are any differences. And yeah, it's still early days, but, but campaigning has gotten underway. So has there been a kind of, of, of shift, a change in any of the, in any of the leaders? Uh, Mitsotakis, uh, somewhere, I think yesterday he said that, you know, if you guys don't, don't go vote, we're going to have third elections in August. He <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, Kyriakos Mitsotakis seems to be following a similar pattern to the previous election period. Mm -hmm. Uh, throughout the first week of uh, speeches and analysis, all three of his speeches remained on the positive end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, the speeches of Alexis Tsipras, Nikos Androulakis and Dimitris Kutsubas fell within the neutral spectrum and Kyriakos Valopoulos speeches, the only one found in the negative spectrum consistent with the previous uh, period. Uh, within the first week of the second pre-election period, uh, a further decline in the utilization of populist discourse patterns by Alexis Tsipras oh. has been indicated compared to both previous periods and, of course, the immediately um, preceding election period. Okay, while Nikoson Rulek speeches included some instances of polarization, they also remained too limited and uh, what we can point out is that in the initial 
two speeches of Alexis Tsipras, we observed two distinct approaches. So in the first speech, he followed the familiar pattern of dividing his speech between agenda setting and criticism, uh, which you know characterized his speeches during the previous election period. However, in his second speech, he predominantly adapted the programmatic approach, minimizing criticism directed uh, at his opponents. And also Nikos Androulakis' speeches seem to exhibit a consistent emphasis on the programmatic dimension and their content is diverse and influenced by, you know, the specific locations where the speeches are delivered. Okay, well this is going to be a really significant body of work. You should probably send it to the party leaders. Have you had any feedback from the from any of the political parties yet? Thank you very much, Phoebe, for your kind words. <laughs> you, we don't have like feedback from the political parties or the leaders, of course, but everything is out there. So uh, all our foundings are published on our website, meaninglab.imet.org, under the uh, National Elections 2023 uh, section. Um, our full methodology is also published, so one can read like step by step what we do and how we do it. And everything is licensed under a Creative Commons uh, license of use, so all our fundings are openly and freely available to be used by everyone. That's super. Thank you so much, Kelly, for giving me the time. I'll let you get back to coding. We thank you very much for the invitation. I'm going back to check if we have any like new speeches to <laughs> go through. Super, thank you. So that was Phoebe talking to Kelly Kiki from IMED. And all the graphs and data analysis are constantly updated with every new party leader speech. So you can check it out at lab.imed.org. Yeah, I've actually been on the site, uh, Phoebe, and, and check it out. It's really, really interesting, actually. And I would uh, highly recommend anyone who's uh, interested in, in, in that kind of thing to take a look. And I love the bit where you can look at... Uh, the leader speeches by topic hmm. and it's very interesting to see which topics are mentioned very frequently and which are mentioned hardly at all <laughs> uh, and uh, also, I, I think for each leader it tells a story but I think overall for uh, Greek politics it t tells a story so for instance something like the environment mm. Features way down the list on all leaders' all uh, speeches. Yes, so we, we, which which tells you about the political debate uh, within Greece. But there's lots of other interesting stuff there. Yeah, no, it's it's a super cool project, and and it one that shows how artificial intelligence can help journalists in our work and and not just make us obsolete. So you could say it's uh, how I learned to stop worrying and love the artificial intelligence. Exactly, Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> <laughs> it's fa fascinating stuff. But, and while we still have time before AI starts doing this podcast in our place. <laughs> yeah, like planet money. <laughs> it, it won't be long. Let's move ahead uh, with the show. As we mentioned, we have Labrini Rory from the University of Athens joining us to discuss the elections. But before that, we've had correspondence from a listener, Phoebe. Yes, and he's a kind of the kind of question that you love. <laughs> <laughs> Nigel Rees was very kind enough to take the time to write to us after hearing our post-election analysis, and he writes. Listening to the latest episode, which I thought was a thorough analysis of the last general election in Greece, I was struck by the fact that there was no discussion of why opinion polls are so often wrong. The highest estimate I heard before the election was for New Democracy to receive 36% of the votes, and with some polls at around 33 to 34, but they received 40.8%, and I believe this difference is well above the margin of error that we're often told about. 
And he goes on to point out that opinion polls have been off in other countries recently, uh, Turkey, but also in the UK and in the USA in the past. And so Nigel was asking us, you know, do you think that there's something wrong with their basic method? And if so, why do newspapers, political parties and everybody else bother to commission them other than to keep the political pot boiling? Yeah, it's a good question. And Nigel, thank you very much for starting off with a compliment. <laughs> Dear listeners, if you write in, it's always a good way to start and get <laughs> get, get your message read on uh, on the show. Um, but no, he, he, he makes a great point. Um, apart from, we should point out that uh, apart from underestimating New Democracy's share of the votes, the opinion polls also overestimated Syriza's uh, support. And we're perhaps caught short in terms of two small parties, ultra-conservative Nikki and populist Plefsi Eleftherias, being close to the 3% threshold for getting into parliament, and something that would increase uh, the number of parties represented in the House from five to seven. Um, it, it might be worth getting a Greek pollster back on the show once the elections are out of the way to take a closer look at this issue. But it is something that has been discussed in the wake of the uh, May 21st elections. And I'll give a kind of quick take that hopefully uh, acts as a placeholder for for Nigel, if not a comprehensive answer. Um, Now, if you look at the exit polls from the first election, 14% of voters decided who they would back in the last week, and another 14 decided on the last day. So you have 28%, close to one in three voters deciding in the final few days of the campaign. And I think wherever you are, whether it's uh, Greece or anywhere else, for pollsters, that's very difficult to then translate into uh, their data and uh, uh, and their projections. And it was quite a surprise that so many people decided at the last minute. Mm-hmm. And I think to some extent, that's where they missed both uh, a, a boost for new democracy above the 35, 36 that we're expecting as a minimum, uh, all the way up to almost 41 that they received. And uh, on the flip side, uh, Sousa, which was ex- expected at maybe 28 to 30, ended up dropping way down to to 20. Now, there is another issue here, which is very uh, particular to do, to, to do with uh, the Greek context, and that is that in the past, opinion uh, poll companies, Greek opinion poll companies, had underestimated Sousa's vote. It happened in 2012. Mm-hmm. It happened to some extent in 2015, and especially with the uh, referendum that that summer. Um, and this created, if you like, a bit of uh, sort of self doubt or introspection within Greek polling companies. And uh, it's something that I asked uh, before these elections to. to to what extent that they had adjusted for this. And uh, the the answer I received was that indeed it was a problem for them in in the past because perhaps Syriza was performing very well or much better than other parties with younger voters. So younger voters uh, tend not to have landlines, tend only to have mobile phones or more reluctant to answer poll questions. And therefore, that might be one of the explanations for this underrepresentation of uh, Syriza. But over the last few years, Greek polling companies, or most of them at least, have adjusted their methodology. They're doing uh, interviews over uh, on mobile phones. They're doing more online polling. They're trying to ensure they have as wide, they're casting the net as wide as possible. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean that somewhere deep within their calculations, their algorithms, they they weren't overcompensating in some way for a series of score. And, uh, uh, and that may explain why it was uh, higher in the poll projections that it ended up being at the uh, ballot box. And of course, you know, th- th- this is an issue, as, as uh, Nigel points out, 
that, that we're having uh, across the world at the moment, and it's uh, to do with uh, perhaps uh, people being reluctant to share their views, uh, polling companies only able to pick up a certain cross section, uh, a certain uh, section of the, the the public, and therefore uh, delivering slightly skewed results. Um, it, it's an issue here in in, in Greece as well. So. I would say all those factors need to be uh, considered. We still don't have a comprehensive answer on that. But Nigel, I hope that gives you an adequate response. And again, thanks for taking the time to write to us. And of course, we encourage other listeners to do the same. And now let's hear from Lambrini Dori, an assistant professor in political analysis here in Athens. She's been speaking to Nick. Thank you for joining us on the Agora. We've got second elections coming up, but let's have a quick look back at the first election because obviously the dynamic that was created then is going to have an impact on how people vote in the next few days. What do you think was the key driver for such a wide margin of victory for new democracy in the first elections? There are a number of things that we can look at economic stability or economic growth, uh, the government's ability to deliver on pre-election pledges, um, the competence that it showed in some people's eyes during the the various crises, the pandemic, uh, the uh, energy crisis and so on, uh, the the migration issue, or is it something uh, less tangible, perhaps presenting, being able to present a hopeful vision of the future. What's your sense? Well, I think first and foremost, it was uh, this effectiveness, uh, of course, in relative terms, in handling the sequence of crises that the country faced since uh, 2019, mainly the pandemic, but the rest of the crisis that you have mentioned. Beyond the leadership capacity that uh, Mitsotakis showed, it was, uh, I believe, the return of the state in protection of citizens' needs in times that they were really in need. This might have been the norm back in the 80s and in the 90s, but it ceased being so in 2010 when uh, the state was no longer able to act as a safety net. Hence, the fact that welfare policies, but uh, also the generous financial support that was uh, almost granted horizontally during the pandemic, I think that this is what made a big difference for large categories of the population. And then also, of course, it was the economic stability and this return to growth that it was missing for more than a decade when a a new democracy won power in 2019. So investment-friendly policies, but also the improvement of the economic climate in a series of indicators and the rising tourist income, the subsequent development, all those factors have contributed to policy, uh, positive evaluations of the government policies, uh, which were both associated to people's personal retrospective evaluation, but also it was associated to a positive national narrative on the economy. So both in personal terms and and nationally uh, considering the image of the country, I think the citizens uh, evaluated positive limits attacks for that. This is important to understand because I think that in psychological terms for a country that has been on the brink of economic collapse in the previous decade and for its people who uh, saw their personal income and status dropping abruptly, I think that uh, this uh, sense of insecurity and limbo that they have been for more than 10 years, it was really traumatic. So this positive evaluation of the previous uh, mandate in the economy, the feeling of stability, but also the international image of the country that has um, improved during the past uh, four years, I think that those uh, conditions created a positive calculus for new democracy. 
And lastly, there is a secondary parameter, but I believe that this also played a role, is that beyond this uh, relatively successful crisis management and the economic stability, new democracy in government has introduced this evidence-based policymaking, technocratic standards that in many uh, aspects, for instance, in public administration, they have made a, a difference, even if it is small, but it is a difference compared to what happened in the previous decade. To give some examples, the digital reforms was one aspect. The acceleration of payment in uh, the pensions was another. That said, of course, uh, very many other things stagnated or lagged behind. It was not, you know, all positive yeah. things happened, but the overall image was one of modernization. And I believe that this also contributed to a general uh, positive evaluation uh, of the incumbent. Okay, uh, let, let's take a look at the opposition then. The, the first elections also represented a huge defeat for Syriza. What's your sense about why Greek voters turned away from the left-wing opposition party? Do you think it was a hangover from when Syriza was in power in 2015 and the turmoil of the uh, negotiations with the Eurozone and the referendum? Or was it more to do with how the party conducted itself in opposition since 2019? I, I believe that both happened. First and foremost, I think that people never forgot the first government of Syriza this one with uh, uh, independent Greeks, during the first ninth months uh, of 2015. This was a traumatic period of extreme financial insecurity, polarization and animosity, in conflict with the EU, and it culminated in a national referendum, the outcome of which was not respected by the Syriza Nel government. And this is not yet forgotten. Even more so, the fact that this ended up in a third bailout, uh, which uh, implemented more austerity and difficult years for the middle classes. Then on top of this, Syriza never really interpreted its defeat back in 2019. It hasn't realized that citizens' priority had shifted gradually from the previous period of the economic crisis to this new decade. And it kept being obsessed with this populist opposition and the negative representations. It created a narrative of distorted reality. We can now say this, that, you know, those arguments, the most destructive government since 1974 transition to democracy for Mitsotakis government. All this, you know, toxic language that uh, remained in uh, uh, Syriza and uh, its cadres and the cliches and the slogans, which were relics of the crisis era, I don't think that have uh, that in Syriza they have understood how much this has costed to them. And at the same time, the party never did its homework as a programmatic uh, opposition. So all the criticisms that we heard in the past four years echoed old-fashioned arguments. Of course, it kept integrating on top of this. Uh, decadent cadres from other parties, like ex-independent uh, Greek cadres, but also ex-New Democracy cadres, who were out of, let's say, the center of power of Mitsotakis. And uh, these grotesque figures who acted as influencers also in social media, I believe that they contributed to an overall image of, you know, either ideological, but also political inconsistency. And lastly, Syriza's campaign, I think this was an epic fail. Public opinion wanted stability, Syriza argued for change. The party emulated PASOK slogans from the 1980s and also it uh, competed with PASOK fervorously, as we saw, on the legacy of Andreas Papadreou, issues for which the people couldn't care less. Finally, this strategy of alliance with the parties on the left of the spectrum that Syriza insisted all the way of the first campaign, and it was rejected by all parties. All this showed that Syriza was really out of context, as if it didn't understand, you know, what were the alliances, what uh, public opinion wanted. So on all fronts, I believe that Syriza failed to succeed in 
uh, having an oblivion on the traumatic past. Mm-hmm. Uh, it failed to modernize the party and to construct a, a, a relevant identity and the program, but also it failed to communicate credible messages during the campaign. You mentioned in your answer about um, the rhetoric used by Syriza and it not really connecting with much of the Greek public, which is, seems to have moved on since the crisis. And it has been suggested by some commentators here in Greece that these elections mark the end of the turbulent and uh, perhaps unique period in Greek politics that began when the country's economic crisis erupted more than a decade ago, let's say around 2009-2010. Do you see it this way? Is this the bookend to the crisis politics in Greece? I believe that the election of the 21st May, it is a landmark in a sense. In the second set, it marks the defeat of this sterile, populist, toxic opposition that had brought Syriza very rapidly to the forefront of the political arena in the beginning of the financial crisis. So even though um, economic normality was gradually reinstated since uh, the exit from the bailouts, and the party system seemed to have followed this normality in uh, 2019, we were saying back in the times that we had a fresh uh, yet lower two-partism composed by New Democracy and Syriza, this recent election informs us on the dealignment of voters on the left of the spectrum, So we can no longer say that this is a two-partism and we no longer expect it to reappear quickly with this single party being able to achieve a majority and many other parties, according to some opinion polls, up to eight parties, this current state is a predominant party system. There is certainly a gap of representation regarding the, the role of the opposition And this is what is mainly at stake uh, in the forthcoming SNAP elections, which is highly, though unlikely, to uh, get resolved quickly. But to answer to your question more clearly, the fact that Syriza plummeted and that voters no longer contain themselves to populist denunciation does not mean that the crises are over. It doesn't mean that crisis politics will, will evaporate. We live in this era of polycrisis, and crises are this new normality. That said, the, parag- the paradigm of governance and the, the leadership that c- citizens want is different. So we will continue to have crises, but citizens are now more demanding. They don't uh, expect from the opposition of the go- or the government simply, you know, to. Um, Uh, denounce the situation or give uh, uh, solutions which are uh, simply appealing to populist demands. And this raises the expectations for uh, both roles, the opposition and the government. Okay, let's take a look ahead at the the elections that we've got uh, coming. Uh, If we assume that New Democracy gets a majority on June the 25th as almost the the opinion polls unanimously suggest and the results in the first election, if if replicated, would obviously deliver a majority for Kyriakos Mitsotakis. What do you think will be its biggest challenges over the next few years, both in terms of running the country and keeping the electorate on its side? One of the biggest challenges, I think it will be to manage the expectations of its electorate. New democracy has promised to increase the salaries and it has created impressions on an economic boom, which is said to follow once the country gets this investment grade. At the same time, uh, we now know that the EU Commission, international organizations and other expert expert actors like uh, the Central Bank of Greece, for instance, they all warn on many problematic aspects of the economy one of which is uh, tax evasions for evasion for instance we heard this in the past uh, two days you know in the media it, it was uh, an yeah. important topic so issues like this will definitely create tensions and deception in uh, the public opinion and the new democracy's electorate 
Another matter is the geopolitical instability, which we don't know how it will evolve. The crisis, uh, crisis has not left us and it remains a top issue in the public's concerns. This can easily escalate to grievances if it persists. Also, I believe that the reformist verb of the government has to showcase the crisis have uh, delayed the reforms plan in the first four years, but now new democracy has really run out of excuses. An easy large majority means that the citizens will also be more demanding. The national health system and public education, they really need radical interventions. And so does justice, public transform, uh, uh, transport, but also public administration. I think this will continue to be major uh, challenges as well. And the fact that new democracy has now in opposition from five to seven parties, of which two are on its right, I think that this also informs us on the difficulties that this fragmented competition foreshadows for the forthcoming government. So there's a lot that plays uh, uh, on for new democracy, and I don't believe it will be a piece of cake because it has a large majority. Yeah, it's clearly a, a tough four years ahead. Um, also, again, going by the opinion polls, if there are no upsets in the second elections, Syriza and PASOK, the centre-left opposition party, which came third in the first elections, are likely to have less than 35% of the votes between them combined. What's the future for these two opposition parties? Has Syriza perhaps lost its relevance now that the economic crisis is fading away? Can PASOK stage a comeback and fill the void? The next four years uh, will be very crucial for this political space that, you know, it starts from the centre and extends to the centre-left and the left. As I mentioned earlier, there's uh, definitely a gap of representation and voters seek for a party which can at the same time constructively represent not only the opposition, but also create a political alternative to new democracy. Syriza has not been able to play this role. It started as a federation of leftist groups and remnants of the radical left in the mid 2000s and its DNA was constructed as an anti-capitalist protest actor, mainly interested to represent the youth movements of that decade. Of course, the financial crisis transformed it rapidly to a populist anti-bailout protest party and it represented the grievances of voters who lost status and income, but also of different interest groups that were struggling to maintain the status quo ante during this financial crisis. This era is now gone, and Syriza proved incapable of transforming itself to a mainstream, modern-looking center-left party. It had the time and it had the opportunity since 2019, but it failed to do so. Even though now the party realizes which is the right path to follow in order to become a vote maximizing actor, it might be too late and its party cadres will have to adopt a more moderate and yet constructive program and policies and discourse and style, which also has to be very convincing. It might not be impossible. I'm not saying that, you know, cannot happen, but it is highly unlikely to happen uh, anytime soon. And uh, uh, under the, this structure especially. Now PASOK, it is the traditional party actor of the centre-left. It has slightly increased its power, but in the post-election context, PASOK doesn't seem to benefit from uh, the existing volatility in the uh, left uh, um, uh, spectrum overall. Even though it is better positioned in terms of party competition than Syriza in order to attract voters both from its right and from its left, it's been a small party for over a decade. And this is clearly manifested in the lack of resources that it has. Of course, its new leader, Nikos Andrulakis, it, he has done a lot in two years in order to renovate the party on the ground and activate its local roots and networks. So organizationally, I believe that PASOK has done a lot of work in two years, 
but it's uh, uneven geographical distribution uh, in electoral terms informs us that there is a big different distance that uh, PASOK has to cover both in terms of representation but also in terms of policy making. It needs to construct a more uh, credible uh, discourse and strategy in order to build a new identity in this post-crisis context. There is still time for this process of transformation and there will be a demand from uh, voters of PASOP to play this role, but it also has to find the right people. So I believe that there is an interesting era opening for the forces of the left and the center left and it remains to be seen whether you know there will this debate about alliances will open or whether uh, the two actors will keep uh, um, the same strategies that we have seen in the past so decisive four years ahead for the uh, these two main opposition parties but since we're talking about the opposition and let's finish with this uh, question Let's look at the surprise of the first election, which was the emergence, almost out of nowhere, of two fringe parties, Nikki, representing, I guess, the ultra-conservative religious right, and Plessy Eleftherias, Course for Freedom, as its English title, a populist party that I would struggle to place somewhere on the political landscape, but which seemingly serves as a personal vehicle for its leader, Zoe Kostadopoulou, formerly of uh, Syriza. Opinion polls suggest that both parties will make it into the next parliament. Is their rise representative of any particular trend we need to keep an eye on, or is it just the result of at least 8 to 10%, maybe a little more, of the Greek population habitually voting for extreme fringe parties? Indeed, both parties seem to make it to Parliament. And according to some opinion polls, also Mera 25 might do so. The Yanis Varoufakis' party, radical left party. Which is of the radical left, yes. Thank you for adding this. Uh, There is also this other uh, party, which is completely new, Spartiates, uh, which uh, Kassidiaris supports, despite all this effort for keeping uh, Kassidiaris out of uh, uh, you the know, former Golden Dawn uh, MP, so that's a far right party. Yes, this is yeah. another far right party, mm-hmm. and the other is almost two percent in the polls at the moment. In a way, uh, given the fact that the rest of the parties, New Democracy, Syriza, PASOK, Kukwe, the Greek Solution, they more or less maintain their scores in the polls. It is as if we conduct this snap election in order to give electoral representation to those fringe actors. The three parties together, Plevsi, Eleftherias, Niki, Mera 25, they gather slightly more than 12%. And this fragmented yet uh, multi-party opposition, which is composed by anti-systemic, reactionary and radical actors, it is highly likely to undermine the quality of parliamentary debates in the near future, if we see them in parliament. Um, I believe that their breakthrough manifests, of course, the incapacity of the other opposition parties in parliament to attract uh, voters, to represent voters. PASOK does not benefit from a series of plummeting, and the ex-series of voters migrate towards small parties, At least this is what we see today. We don't know what will happen until elections, or at least at the moment this is the the trend. For sure, there are also floating uh, voters who are really anti-systemic and very radical, and they also seek uh, uh, representation. Now, on the extreme right, there is a gap created by the absence of Golden Dawn, And we see that the Velopoulos party, the Greek solution, which is uh, the radical right party that has been in parliament in the previous uh, four years, it seems incapable of extending beyond very specific audiences, mainly in Northern Greece. And on the extreme left, we see that ex Yanis Varoufakis voters and ex Syriza voters, but also radical right voters, they opt for this party of Zekostadopoulou. 
which we already see that it manifests authoritarian practices. We see that its mm-hmm. leader is playing, you know, as if she owes the party. So there is no democratic uh, accountabilities at the moment um, in her practices. So we should never underestimate what those anti-systemic actors can do once they gain access in institutions. We have seen them acting during the previous decade. They will, of course, use the parliament as an instrument in order to gain visibility, in order to promote reactionary attitudes. And, of course, they will take advantage of the existing grievances in order to magnify and politicize them. On the other hand, uh, the recent past has taught us that for many of those populist and anti-systemic actors, you know, once uh, they access power and the voters uh, see what the quality of their uh, opposition is, they easily abandon them, maybe seeking for other anti-systemic actors, but when you know their anti-democratic and toxic worldviews enter into parliament, this also uh, prevents voters, you know, to vote them uh, again in the future. Still, I believe that their presence in parliament can become a real obstacle for promoting reforms in the sociocultural agenda. In the case of Nikki and the Greek solution, and in the agenda of state reforms and the economy. Uh, from the side of Plevsi Eleftherias and maybe Mera 25 if it gets into parliament. This is a really fragmented space of small parties, but we shouldn't underestimate that they will be an obstacle to, you know, a quality debate that the opposition could offer to public opinion. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly going to be an interesting four years uh, ahead, it's, it seems, uh, Labrini, I think we've covered all the bases ahead of the second elections on June 25th. Let's see what the voters decide and maybe uh, in the weeks ahead we can have another chat to see how the landscape has settled after this, uh, uh, these two elections and hopefully we remain in two uh, during the summer. Thank you very much for your time and your insight. Thank you. Lambrini Rori from the University of Athens speaking to Nick about the upcoming elections and the changes to Greece's political landscape. Thanks very much to Lambrini for her insight. And that brings us to the end of yet another election special podcast. You'll be pleased to know, or maybe you won't, I don't know, (laughs) it won't be our last. We aim to have a post-election analysis episode out after the vote on June the 25th. I hope, as I'm sure you do, dear listener, that we will then be able to move on to other subjects and that a third election won't be necessary. I've been joking about third elections for months now, but when Mitsotakis mentioned them as a possibility for mid-August, if new democracy doesn't get a majority, well, that, okay, I got the chills. I I mean, it's not a joke. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually quite a scary prospect. Um, But thankfully, it seems an unlikely one. For New Democracy to fail to get a majority in these elections, we probably need upwards of seven parties making it into a parliament, which is a distinct possibility. But we'll also need the centre-right party to get less than 39% of the vote. And based on what happened last month and on the latest opinion polls, that outcome doesn't look likely at all. It looks almost certain that New Democracy will get over 39%. Although I'm not sure that I can have that much confidence in the opinion polls after our earlier discussion. <laughs> yeah, you, you have a point there, Phoebe. And on that cliffhanger, <laughs> we have to leave you for now. But don't forget to write to us, like us, and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast. And of course, don't forget to check out our articles and much more on the website. That's www.macropolis.gr. That's Macropolis with a C. Bye.
Bye-bye. Bye-bye.